Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the One to One Career Conversation podcast. This week we're meeting with Steve Wanzik. Steve is an executive director at a non-profit dedicated to election integrity, along with being a founder of a company called the Dunshire Group. We talk about the work that Steve is doing right now to fight for election integrity in the United States, which is absolutely key in 2020, and how his career in digital marketing and communications is helping to support his work today. Steve started out in online merchandising in 2006 and then moved into online reputation management. Steve moved on to a startup and quickly progressed through the ranks, seeing the company grow from a small number of employees starting out in the founder's kitchen to now hundreds of employees post many mergers and different acquisitions. We talk about keeping teams in sync, progressing through the ranks internally, and then also setting up business on your own and specifically how to set up a nonprofit business. Here is my conversation with Steve. Hey Steve, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Thanks. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah, nice to talk to you. So let's talk about your career path and how you wound up becoming an executive director for a nonprofit dedicated to election integrity. How did yeah, it all begin? Sure. That, that sounds nice to hear you say it that way. It sounds very fancy and, and, <laughs> and accomplished. Um, you know, I, it's been uh, an interesting road to, to where I am today. And, and I think uh, only very recently I started to think about my career as sort of like a double helix, you know, kind of use that metaphor, like the structure of the DNA, which was two threads that, um, you know, kind of circulate around a common center of gravity, but they're a little bit distinct. And so, um, you know, I, I think to go back to just sort of where it all started, um, you know, I've always had an interest in these two separate, but I think related fields, which is, uh, you know, media communication on the one side and then politics and policy on the other. And so those are, those are the threads that, uh, you know, I, I've sort of jumped from one to other at various steps along the way. And, and once I started thinking about it that way, uh, you know, I was able to think about my career as sort of a cohesive narrative kind of to, to where I am today. So what is it like working in election integrity in 2020? Yeah, so um, I, I guess I can back up and kind of tell you a little bit about where the seed of the idea came from and how I wound up here. But, um, you know, I'd spent 15 years or so, which, which we can discuss in greater detail, um, in the digital marketing world. And, and I was, for most of that, with an agency and doing private sector work, you know, thinking about business to business marketing metrics and, and things like that. Um, and about a year ago, uh, you know, I finally sort of all of the anxiety and concern that I had about the world around us boiled over and uh, and so I decided to to make sort of this leap from from that world to the public interest nonprofit um, kind of advocacy space and um, so in doing so I, I tried to kind of find a, a niche or a lane that was not occupied was not getting a whole lot of attention and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of, like I said, I've sort of always had an interest in politics and policy. And, and so, it, you know, a, a hobby of mine or, or sort of how I spend some downtime at the end of the day is just, of course, reading, you know, reading about current events, reading about the problems we face as a society. And, and that's sometimes, especially these days, it's not the best bedtime reading, but um, I, I found that uh, certain kinds of articles were the ones keeping me up at night and they revolved around the potential 
that this 2020 presidential election had to, to really be problematic and kind of go sideways um, just because we know the, you know, the, the strategy or the lack thereof um, coming from one side, um, how our democratic norms were not going to be um, honored and, and, um, and kind of followed. So, you know, there were a lot of great groups working on things like voter suppression and voter registration. And, and of course, you know, COVID came along and, and now it was about, can we recruit new poll workers, um, you know, to replace folks who are, who are in a little bit more of a high risk demographic. And one thing that was not getting any attention anywhere that I could see was the process itself, which, you know, as we're now living through, um, and I, and you know, I know this is a podcast, and and it it will be sort of evergreen depending on when people listen. But but right now on Friday, November twentieth, um, we're still in the midst of kind of the uh, you know the, the fallout and and seeing how everything will shake out in terms of the you know respecting the actual results of this election. And so in the news right now, we're looking at how. Um, the electoral college is assigned and how state legislators may or may not have a role uh, in that process. You know, spoiler alert, they don't, um, you know, uh, under most state statutes and, and constitutional interpretations, they, they do not and the, and the popular vote must be respected. Um, but these are all things that I was a little worried about back the, the first half of this year. Um, specifically as it relates to uh, state election officials and county election officials and how they administer their job, how the election would run, whether there was a potential for bias and pressure from the top down, um, you know, which again, we're, we're now seeing pressure from the White House uh, directly at some of these state legislators um, to monkey with the process. And so, that's the lane that uh, that I chose to get in, and it, it turned out to be fairly prescient, I think, because a lot of the things I'm concerned about are now unfolding uh, before our eyes, e even after the election. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I spun up a website, um, registered as a nonprofit in the state of Virginia, and went through the process of 501c3 certification, um, and kind of attempted to build an entity from the ground up um, to, to, to jump into this fight. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's sort of where we are now. So before we double back a little bit on uh, the importance of the work that you're doing with the, the nonprofit, can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with uh, the Dunshai group as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So when I left uh, my, my agency where I had been for, for 10, 11 years, um, which was called REQ, and, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a bit, um, you know, I, I left with an idea of the mission that, you know, I, I was drawn to and, and kind of generally what I wanted to accomplish, but I didn't have a, a, a job offer lined up, right? I mean, and as I just walked through, you know, basically I created this um, w w without much of a safety net. Um, and so the Dunshire Group is, uh, was a consulting entity that, um, you know, I, I spun up to, to continue doing some um, some marketing work as an independent contractor. Uh, so it, it sort of served and continues to serve as a bridge between, you know, my old world and the new uh, advocacy space that I'm in. Um, you know, it was, it was some helpful flexibility 
to continue to have contacts with, you know, old clients and, and old work relationships um, and just to be able to work as an independent contractor. So, you know, the, the way that the last 12 months have unfolded, um, you know, everyone's kind of working from home and, and piecing things together, gig economy. And so uh, that's, that's what um, the Dunshire group is. And, and I've been able to continue to do some good work with both old clients and new um, in kind of the marketing and communication space uh, specific to digital. Um, you know, and it's, it's very nice. Uh, I, I certainly had a great run, um, you know, uh, on the agency side and, and working within something that has more strength. Um, but I, I also like being able to make as much or as little work as I, I want or need, you know, at a given time, um, you know, really sort of define the clients that I want to work with and, and just have that flexibility and freedom. So um, it has worked out well. So as you mentioned, the U.S. is in the midst of an election still. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. Of, obviously, to, at the moment, it must be it must be crazy with the amount of work that you're doing. But mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about the future and the type of work that, and effort that you hope to achieve in the coming months and years as it relates to, you know, um, election integrity? Yeah, um, uh, that is a, a very on point question because of you know where where we are right now i think in this in this moment in history you know what it feels like uh, things are at a pivot point um and i've had a, a series of calls this week with with partners that i've developed relationships with in the lead up to the election because there was really this nice all hands on deck movement of groups coming together um to to try to do everything in our collective power to make sure that the election went smoothly. Um, you know, and in hindsight, it really was remarkably smooth. It was safe. It was secure. There were no major incidents. I mean, there was a fear of, of violence potentially affecting election day itself. Um, and so we're through that. And, and it was nice to be part of a collective effort um, with groups that, you know, have their own issues, climate groups, uh, racial and social justice groups, um, you know, criminal reform, gun reform, things like that. Everyone was aligned in support of democracy and, ha you know, has been for the last several months. And so now we're through the election. Um, there are certainly still questions about the health of our democracy. Uh, and, and that's what I'm hoping to tackle here in the, in the mid to long term. And, and sort of where I see Protect Our Election headed is, um, you know, kind of pivoting from, immediate action taking and you know what we've been doing is asking supporters to contact their uh, you know state elected officials and and sort of tick uh, you know public pledges in support of this set of democratic principles that we developed uh, working together with with election lawyers and experts um, and so that's where we had been and and now I think what I'm shifting to is being proactive about it right you know we, we've lived through this kind of traumatic election um, and we've seen how delicate and fragile our, our democracy is I think so the question is you know what things need to be codified into law or state statute to really ensure that that future elections are are not only smooth but um, uh, you know but respected um, that the results are respected so I, I see us kind of transitioning into you know an, an, an advocacy 
pro-election reform advocacy organization that is working to develop relationships with the election officials on the ground. Um, one of the things we were able to do uh, over the course of the last several months is build a database that has you know, contact information and details about 4,600 different county level election offices in this country. Um, one of the things I think we've seen this cycle is that a strength of our democracy is how decentralized the process is. And, you know, elections are run in local communities by people who live there. Um, and that's, that's a, a real strength, I think. And so what, what I'd love to do is continue to reinforce that, build those relationships um, and push back on the disinformation, you know, that, that's out there now. And, and, that is a, a bigger problem and, and one that I, that I do hope to, to you know, contribute um, to solving in some small way as we go. And, and uh, you know, part of that I think is um, just rebuilding, rebuilding a sense of community, uh, trying to reestablish a shared truth, a shared set of facts that, that we you know, can inhabit together in this country. Um, you know, and, and that's, like I said, sort of on the top, this this metaphor of like a double helix, that's where politics and policy is coming back and connecting with media and communications, because I think the way to break through and, and you know, rebuild our union is figuring out what we have in common. Yeah, I mean, I truly respect the work that you're doing. I think as a as an individual that I, I'm not able to vote in the US, I, I live here, but as, a, as an expat, it's not, you know, part of the that, that process and this was the first year that I lived in the US and witnessed a presidential election and I, it, wasn't I, it was wild yeah <laughs> I was like what, what's going on it is not supposed to it's not supposed to go this way um it, it is just it, it is surreal almost to live through this moment where we're seeing you know these sort of archaic loopholes you know from from the 18th century or, or the late 19th century that you know people are trying to take advantage of related to the way that the electoral college works and the way a certain law was written in you know 1876 i mean it was unthinkable to to try to go down this road up until now right i mean up until the the 2016 election and the, the current occupant of the white house so you know, I'm. I, I think I'm a. I'm an optimist. I'm a. I'm a cautious optimist at heart, and you know, I'm. I'm hoping that uh, that things will get better, but it it'll take some work, right? Uh, one of the things I've said uh, to a lot of um, you know potential organizations that I, that we're hoping to partner with recently is that it was a mistake for a, a lot of us to think that the truth speaks for itself. Um, you know, for, for over a decade now, this, you know, the conspiracy theories on the fringe right wing have been allowed to kind of fester, right, and, and, and take hold. And I think like civil societies, polite societies, because we're not going to dignify that with a response. But, you know, what we've seen is we live in a new world of social media where these things uh, can, can grow and, and start to overcome segments of the population. Um, and so I, I think truth needs to fight back and it's not going to do it by itself. It, it takes a coordinated effort of those of us who, who you know, want to live in, in a reality that's based on reality. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you now back 14 years, it's 2006 
and you were the manager of online merchandise at Simplexity. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your role there and you know what was involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, might, I might take us back even a little farther, which is about four years before that in 2002, um, because I think that sets up, you know, kind of how I wound up there. Um, I was uh, I was living in Boston, and actually, my first job out of uh, out of college, undergrad, um, was in TV production, uh, and I was working in the media in Boston um, for a, a channel called the New England Sports Network, which for uh, a, a um, you know Massachusetts kid in his twenties, um, a, a huge baseball fan, I got to actually produce. Boston Red Sox games for, for, for uh, as my job. Um, so it was kind of living the dream. Uh, and, you know, that, that was a great couple of years living in Boston and, and doing that. Um, but it, it was a bit of a dead end position in terms of both salary advancement and work-life balance. Um, just the nature of that world, I think, is that, you know, people who wind up in the senior position stay there forever. Right, people will will be a, a senior producer or an executive producer for for thirty years, and so you know the the management positions don't always open up. Um, the pay is not great because it, it, everyone you know wants to wants that job. Uh, there's no shortage of of sports fans who want to get in there, and the work life balance was such that I would I was working evenings or overnights, and you know kind of I didn't see a. A, a, a long-term future for myself there. Um, so I, I made the decision to go to Georgetown, which is how I wound up in the Washington DC area um, for a program, uh, a grad program called Communication, Culture and Technology, um, which I sort of think of now and, and I probably thought of at the time as well as kind of like computers for liberal, liberal arts kids. Um, <laughs> And you know, it was an effort to try to see where the, the world and where marketing and communications was headed back in 2002. And we were only five years or so into you know the you know the kind of Google era, Yahoo. Um, you know, we were very early on in in the internet age. Um, and I, I decided to take this take this leap. Um, you know, sort of, I'll never forget a conversation I had with my mom, actually, where she said, well, what are you hoping to do with, with this degree? Because it was sort of nebulous, not necessarily all that well-defined. And, uh, and I told her that I, I wanted a job that hadn't been invented yet. Um, and so in, uh, in 2002, I, I think it was the case that the job I wound up with that you're referring to in 2006 had not really been invented yet because it was really oriented around search engine optimization. Um, and you know this this brand new field of uh, how can we craft and and curate content that Google is going to surface, um, you know, and so that that became um, I mean obviously such a revolution in how we access and process information. I mean it has changed everything about the world, uh, you know, and when you sort of think about the the influence and the power that Google has, it, it can be um, a little overwhelming. Um, but what they've accomplished is, is equally overwhelming. And so um, that position in 2006 was basically, it was a company called Infonic and, and um, this was pre iPhone days and Infonic sold 
cell phones um, and on plans to, you know, to, to people um, who are sort of looking for the best deal and, and you know, how can and match uh, this phone with that plan. Um, and so it was very geared towards product marketing. It was a lot of, you know, writing descriptions about the various phone models. Um, and so looking back, one might view that as, uh, you know, kind of dull work to sit there thinking about, you know, phone descriptions for, for you know, eight hours a day. Um, but what it was, was really a fascinating exercise in figuring out how to optimize stuff for the search engines. Um, you know, and so for that reason, I found it uh, really strategic and, um, uh, you know, fascinating to, to start to learn that world from the ground up. Because in 2006, there were no training programs that, you know, this, this stuff was not being taught in college or grad school. Um, everyone in, in that space was making it up as we went along. And so, you know, from that perspective, it was, it was fun. Yeah, I started my digital career. Um, I do digital marketing as a, as a day job, if you will. And uh-huh. that was in 2006 too. Yeah. And I remember, I remember making an image on a website, go from left to right. And people had thought I'd broken the internet like, <laughs> yeah. at that point. So, so can you, you t- talk to me a little bit about search engine optimization in that time? Like, what was it like trying to sit there and figure, figure that out um, yeah. when you didn't really it, know much about it? It was what I, um, what I eventually came to realize, and I think what really continues to draw me towards at least some aspects of, of SEO and, and just digital marketing in general is that you needed to think about, you needed to almost reverse engineer it, right? You needed to think about what were people actually going to search for? Not the way that you would describe your product, but what is your audience looking for? How would they describe it? You know, what are the terms that they're going to punch into Google and and how do you want to be found? Um, So it really, you know, it, it was not just sitting there and typing up specs and, you know, coming up with ways to describe a phone, it was a little bit of, uh, you know, an exploration of, of kind of psychology and, and audience research and things like that. And so that, that's what, you know, really held my interest for a while in that, in that role. Um, the, the search engine piece of it specifically leads to kind of probably the next pivot point in my career, because again, this is about that same time period, 2006, seven, um, and the company that I was with had a reputational issue that was surfaced if anybody Googled the brand. Um, and nobody knew how to fix it, <laughs> it, it internally in-house. And so my, my boss and I at the time said, well, there, there is only one way to fix it. It's to optimize our search results. It's to think about how can we get some positive stuff on page one um, for our brand instead of this, this negative stuff. And you know, the negative stuff was not anything bad that the company had had done. It was all these review sites where, you know, there were a handful of customers who didn't get the phone they ordered or they didn't get their their rebate or something went wrong with the process. But all that is like operational stuff, right? And and if a few dozen people out of millions of customers, you know, the the, the angry ones are the ones that make noise and, and that really has an impact on the internet. I mean, we, we still live in that world with, you know, thinking about things like Yelp. Um, so we, uh, we were tasked with, with trying to solve 
that problem and and we did by creating a bunch of positive content like spinning up a blog that was about the company um, finding other places to seed the positive content in ways that we knew google would uh, um, would kind of reflect and and pull up in the search rankings um, and you know from there uh, I, I sort of jumped to the next day of career yeah, and that was when you joined uh, Rep Equity as Director of Operations and over time promoted to Vice President of Search. So going back to those original kind of roots of 2006 and then on to Senior Vice President of Digital Marketing. So, you know, lots of different roles at one different company. Can you talk about them and, and how you progressed through the yeah. ranks pretty quickly? Yeah, so Rep Equity grew directly out of the work that that uh, I had been doing at, at Infonic, which then became Simplexity, um, because in solving that reputational challenge we had there, I actually developed a relationship um, with a guy who was the, the vice president of corporate comms there, uh, senior to me, a uh, member of the senior leadership at Simplexity, a uh, guy by the name of Trip Donnelly, who, who over the, the next 10, 11 years um, became uh, my boss, my my mentor, my dear, dear friend to this day. Um, but basically he uh, wound up working with me on the, the reputational piece uh, there at Simplexity and, and saw, you know, all credit to, to him for seeing the potential of this idea. And, and he left uh, Simplexity to start Rep Equity. So um, he's the founder and CEO. And then a few months later, uh, brought me along with him. So uh, I was very fortunate to have that opportunity and that wonderful relationship with Trip. Um, you know, I, back to really, I think serendipity um, is a theme in so many of these career narratives, I think, because, you know, I, I'll never forget, I um, Trip needed a, a press release written uh, at Simplexity and, and he kind of came out of this and was looking around and, and I, I happened to be sitting there <laughs> and I, I typed up a press release in 30 minutes or so and, and uh, I guess he was happy with it and, and from there we, you know, we, we developed this relationship and so he trusted me enough to, to bring me along with him when he started Rep Equity um, and so we were sort of a true startup story. There were, it was Trip, myself and, and another dear friend, uh, Tiffany Carter, uh, we worked together there. Um, the three of us all came from Simplexity and started up Rep Equity. And so we were, you know, working in, in Tripp's kitchen and, and eating string cheese all day and not really having a real office and kind of figuring out where we were going to get our computer, you know, and uh, uh, um, building from a base of, of one client to two and then five and then 10. Uh, and so the first few years were... Um, really rewarding and, and fun. And a lot of the roles that you mentioned reflected the fact that we were all wearing a lot of different hats. Uh, you know, some days it was, uh, I, I'd have client calls all day long and then the next day I'd be tasked with hiring our, our new account manager or, you know, literally like sending the invoices to clients. And so the, the, the director of operations tag there, which was my first role, I think reflected that just, you know, I, I, I was trying to keep tabs on as much as I could during those days while, while Trip was um, building the business and doing a lot of the sales lead generation. Um, and I, I, I loved that. You know, I, I loved those days. I loved those people. Um, being part of a small, growing enterprise was, was, was wonderful. And then came to learn the, the subject matter as well, you know, because SEO was evolving and Google's algorithm was 
constantly changing. And, and so we, um, you know, we became a really trusted source for a lot of our clients who were trying to navigate, you know, this new world. And um, our early focus was on uh, this idea of reputation management, um, but we grew uh, far beyond that to do uh, more search engine marketing. And then we, we wound up putting together an advertising team um, about three years in, I think, uh, we acquired another agency and that more than doubled our size and added a lot of really awesome branding and creative capabilities. And so, um, you know, it w went from a, a small team of three to a, a group of 30 or 40 pretty quickly. And then um, by the time I left last year, uh, I think we were pushing 100 employees or so. It's crazy. So with what was it like starting with a company and then just watching it, watching it grow over a hundred employees, yeah. what, you know, you, you saw the company grow up. What was that like to witness? I mean, it was, it was amazing. It, it was, um, I still draw a tremendous amount of pride from being part of that. And it was, uh, it was, you know, on the one hand, there, there's obviously you look at things like revenue and, and your bottom line and your headcount and, and you can see this really positive, movement and and you know that you're growing and you're part of uh this thing that's working um that's incredibly rewarding but but at a deeper level it, really having the opportunity to contribute to the culture that we established there from the very early days and even as we grew it, it never felt to me like that changed and so that's what i am very fond of is is you know thinking to this sort of unique thing that we we gave birth to and uh, managed to keep it special like even as it grew um you know and there are, there are challenges associated with that and, and you know that was toward towards the end of my time there um i started to realize that i really enjoyed smaller um initiatives and smaller groups uh rather than the the things that you're forced to do when you become big um you, you know there's there's not really a good way to, um, uh, uh, you know, to continue, continue to push an organization forward when it gets to a certain size without having to do things like, you know, weekly staff meetings and timesheets and HR, you know, concerns and all that kind of stuff, which obviously is needed, right? If you're going to grow into a, a large corporation, which Trip has continued to push towards and, you know, uh, um, I, I think been extremely successful at but i really liked the flexibility and the um the creativity that came with the early days where it was uh, all right well what has to be done today i'm going to figure out a way to do it and you know our, our motto in the early days and even through to to last year was uh just fucking do it <laughs> you know um it, rather than worrying about you know the paperwork so to speak and, and while you were there, as we mentioned, you were promoted internally from a director to an SVP. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you handled internal promotions. Was it the the fact that you were there from day day dot that helped with that, or you know, did you do some other things which helped with internal promotions against your other comp you know your other team members? Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's a, a great question uh, that requires a lot of reflection, I think, because part of it certainly is the fact that I was one of the, uh, you know, the earliest members of the executive team. And I always felt very respected and appreciated by, by Trip and some of the other senior folks we added along the way. And so I think that was certainly part of it, that as we grew, um, specifically through acquisitions, right? Because when you are a, a company of, say, 12 people, 
you have a way of doing things and, and kind of a, a hierarchy that everybody understands. And then you acquire another company that has their own hierarchy. And so it, it's, it, it was, you know, it's challenging, but I think we did it very well to integrate groups like that. And so sometimes that's when the title bump would come, right? Because we want to make sure that everybody understands where they are in relation to each other. Um, and so that was, that was one part of it. And then as we continued to grow, um, you are forced to slow operations a little bit more, um, which again is one of the things that I, that I didn't love because I really liked having my hands on a lot of things. Um, but as you do get to 50, 60, 70 people, it's just impossible for everybody to, you know, for one person to, to have their hand in everything. And, and I certainly understood that. So then it becomes, well, where, what's the area that you want to focus on, right? And so that's where I, I, I think we added the search and social media aspect to my title. Because um, that's where we, you know, the whole company kind of grew out of. And, and that's where I continue to focus, even as we added things like advertising and creative uh, brand research and development. Um, and really the other things needed to become like a full service agency. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, kind of how, how those two pieces come together. And, uh, you know, as, as your role grew and more people came on board, you know, I'm sure one of your key responsibilities was to ensure all of those different teams were working towards the same goal, but they probably had different priorities as well. You know, that the technical team is probably on one side and the account team is on another and you have to make sure that they're all working in the same way. How did you, how did you go about doing that? I think, you know, and you could throw clients into that mix as well, because where I sat, um, you know, eventually it was kind of as, as a leader on the account team, like our internal account services team, but then also helping to coordinate with um, the service groups that delivered. So the, the search group or the social media group. Um, and so coordinating all those folks internally, but then also communicating with the clients, you know, I think, Ultimately, the single skill set that is required there is an ability to um, put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand what they need and how to talk to them. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's probably a tremendously valuable skill to have in life in general. And, and you know, whether it's sort of empathy, I guess, or, or understanding, um, you know, being malleable enough to change yourself rather than expecting other people to change, if that makes sense, right? But the approach is a little bit different depending on who you're talking to. Um, you know, tech teams, you mentioned as an example, that that's one great example because they think about things very differently than, than creatives do. Um, so when you're the person in the seat trying to, you know, coordinate everything, you can't have your own style that you are stubborn about. You, you've got to change literally even like the tone of your voice when you go from room to room. So um, I think that's, that's one of the things that, uh, that I tried to do was, was sort of have that adaptability. And after 12 years or so, you, you know, as we mentioned, you opted to leave the corporate world and set up your own company. Do you, you mentioned before that it was kind of the realization that you liked the smaller, you know, the, the not so much of the HR process and the timesheets and things like that. Was, was it always in your mind to do your own thing or was it that kind of realization that, okay, maybe now's the time to do my own thing? Yeah, you know, I, 
it's it's interesting because I was very conscious throughout most of my career that I I didn't have like a five year plan necessarily. Um, I, I was sort of making it up as I went along, and and I'm not I'm not suggesting that's the right approach by any means because it always bothered me a little bit that I didn't have like a, a clear vision of where I wanted to be in five or ten years. But but I think now looking back, um, it it made sense because perhaps without knowing it. Um, I did want to, you know, kind of be on my own and, and leave the comfort of a company that I'd been with for 10, 11 years. Uh, you know, I think in some respects, um, it's helpful to think about your career as a, as a story, right? Or a, a narrative that has, that has a plot, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and I didn't realize until I left uh, Rep Equity that this was the natural progression of that story. And I sort of saw along the way, like, you know, little, um, little things that I had picked up or projects I had worked on, just, you know, people I had developed relationships with all came together to, to kind of make, make leaving um, the right move, you know, and it was sort of bittersweet. Um, but, you know, that, that sense of needing a little bit of a progression um, is certainly one reason why you know I wound up here I think um, the other piece is that there's a, a little bit of burnout as much as you might like a, a one place to be there for 10 11 years um, I think that's pretty rare these days right I mean a lot of the resumes that I was looking at when we were hiring people stay places for 18 months or three years um, and so I, I felt probably like you know I needed a, a new challenge and and um, you know, it, it didn't help that the world was sort of burning around us. And I will, I will freely admit that in the last two or three years at Rep Equity, I lost a little bit of my passion for B2B marketing metrics because I, you know, I, I wanted to work on something that I thought was um, socially, uh, politically important um, and, you know, find kind of a fresh motivation. So I think that's, um, that's the answer to the question, I guess. It was never part of the plan until, in hindsight, it became clear that it was, right? <laughs> so if, if someone's out there today thinking about setting up their own, their own gig, their own business, what advice would you, would you give them? Um, you know, I think it's the same advice that I'd give uh, someone who, who is, is in a relationship, right? And, and I say that because I've thought about this myself. Um, I, you know, I had a relationship earlier in my life that never quite felt right, but I also never quite got out and, and eventually I did. And, um, I, I looked to, you know, those last two or three years that I just mentioned and things started to not, not feel as right to me, um, in, in that, in that role. And so I, I guess the advice would be once your gut starts to tell you that, um, you know, move on. Um, I, I did said, you know, I sort of shared this with a few colleagues along the way who, uh, who left rep equity, um, or just friends in, in, in uh, my personal life who, who, you know, were, were leaving a job, um, whether it was of their own volition or not. And I think it's important to put in context that it, it is just a job. Right. And, and it's hard to say that to someone who maybe has just been laid off. Um, but your job, your life does not need to be defined by 
your your job in that moment, right? I think it's more defined by what you've accomplished over the kind of holistic arc of your life. And, and that for most people takes the shape of a career, but, but it's not, I think it, the moments that we live in can, can feel a little bit like quicksand sometimes, like it's hard to get, generate your own momentum to break free of, of an orbit that you're in. Um, I would say to anyone who feels even the slightest draw to do that, to, to do it. And, you know, you, you've got a huge amount of experience in, in many, many different fields. We've spoken today about search engine optimization, social advertising. We've spoken about uh, B2B marketing analytics, brand strategy, building websites, communications, um, saving elections. Mm-hmm. What really gets you uh, fired up and, and motivated every, every morning? Yeah, I think um, it's probably the thing that, uh, you know, the strands of my career have in common, which is uh, kind of like market and audience research and, and understanding um, how to break through to people, right? Uh, you, might, you might perhaps call that provision. Um, I, I think it's a valuable um, angle to take and the, the research part of it is, uh, is fascinating, I think, figuring out how how to talk to people and how to talk to different segments of people. I also think the reason I still am drawn to that, you know, in the role that I have today with Protect Our Election, is that I, I see that as the way to fix so much of what's wrong with our society, right? We, you know, we, we've been talking past each other for so long, um, devolving into these tribes uh, in, in this country at least. And, and, you know, I think the trend holds around the world. Um, you know, that, that finding a way to, um, to be persuasive again and, and, and to, uh, you know, kind of build connections is, is what's really important to me. And I often think about it through the lens of, you know, pop culture or sports, um, because so much of politics has become identity-based at this point. It's not even really policy-based for a lot, of, uh, a lot of folks in this country. And so what are the ways we can break down that identity? What are the ways we can get to the core of it and, um, and heal it a little bit, I think, right? And, and so it's finding the right language to do that and, and the right strategies to do that. So is it a fair statement to say it's like the human psychology of communication and people that really kind of gets you going? Yeah, yeah, I, I, thank you. I think that's a very good way of saying it. Yeah, I, I think for me personally, I think it's under like I think it's similar. It's probably not as much in the the politics lens, but it, it's more just understanding people, whether they're customers or my team or yeah. relationships, family. Just trying to get underneath inside somebody's head and understand really what the true motivation is behind what they're saying. So I can yeah, I can relate to that. And you know, one one really interesting caveat to that or nuance to that is that coming from the digital marketing world, and you'll know this well, there's so much of a, a focus on data and analytics. And, and I, I love digging into that, don't get me wrong, but I'm still, I, I, I feel like there is still such a human element to it too, that data cannot quite surface. Um, and so we always thought of the whole process as you know, part art, part science um, at Rep Equity. And so it's you know, a, a nice combination of um, digging into the data but then you've got to have the skill to put that into, you know, a message that resonates with people. 
So we spoke about this at the top of the show, but to loop back to um, Protect Our Election, you mentioned it was a, a non-profit. So I'm kind of interested to understand how that really works from a, from a business perspective. Uh, yeah, good, good question, because this is, it's all relatively new to me. Um, I suppose another piece of advice I'd give someone who is thinking about forging out on their own is um, to not be intimidated by things like process um and you know filing requirements and stuff like that because i I felt a little frozen for a few months uh earlier this year the the back half of last year um because it seemed so insurmountable to kind of start something from scratch to you know to how who you know how do i get registered as a nonprofit? what am i gonna have to do oh i'm gonna have to deal with the irs um you know do i need a team of lawyers to do that and you know in the end um i i didn't i just sort of jumped in and it was not as hard as the world makes it sound um you know i i think part of it was that when i left uh, rep equity um and started up the dunshire group which was the consulting entity that we talked about i realized that that wasn't that hard i just filed a little bit of paperwork and suddenly i had a company you know i had an llc and so that that gave me a little bit of the the confidence or knowledge, I guess, to go ahead and do the same thing with Protect Our Election. Now, there were a few more hoops to jump through as it related to, to getting 501c3 status um, and, you know, starting to, to, to work on fundraising and things like that. And I, and I think at this stage, and I'm sure it is vastly different for nonprofits that, you know, employ dozens of people or hundreds of people. Um, but for me, uh, sort of uh, running still a pretty small shop of largely volunteers, um, you know, the, the kind of logistics of it are not, you know, a significant issue. It's the, it's the fundraising. It's, you know, and I, I will certainly, um, you know, it, it is not my favorite thing to go hat in hand asking people for money. <laughs> um, but at the very least, doing it for this cause has been met with very positive reactions. Uh, you know, so um, it's, uh, that's the part that sort of never stops, uh, at least at this point in, in our, our life cycle, uh, you know, because we've, we've got to build. Um, and so, you know, finding the right way to uh, reach out to the right kinds of donors or the right kinds of, uh, you know, funding organizations has been something new for me. Um, but, you know, not necessarily um uh, you know so difficult that uh, that i have regrets or anything like that I, I i would say you know to go back to the, the the theme it's it's not as hard as it might seem from the outside so is that the the biggest challenge then for you is the is the fundraising piece of a nonprofit? is that is that the hardest thing for for me right now yeah um and you know just because you need a little bit of you know, traction to turn something into a, a snowball that rolls down the hill, right? And so we we have we did enough to to sort of get through the election because everybody was so up in arms about it, and it was such a, a flashpoint. And so now, where we are, and, and this harkens back to the question about sort of where we pivot. Now it's convincing people to invest in something, um, you know, a little bit more long term. Um, so it's you know, kind of thinking about the strategy of that, building a, a plan for that from the ground up and envisioning what that looks like down the road, right? If, if suddenly there's a larger, um, you know, larger bit of funding to work from, 
how we use it. Uh, and you know, that I very much like. Um, there's a lot of perhaps almost too much freedom because you know you can literally make it up as you go. Uh, and you know, I occasionally need uh, you know need to throw some ideas against the wall and 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 get checked by people to to make sure that I'm you know haven't bit off more than I can chew or that this is all still makes sense outside of my own head, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably the challenge, but it's also the fun of it. And as you mentioned there, you, you obviously had a lot to learn when setting up a nonprofit, you know, what, what to file and taxes mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff. You also hold, you know, uh, we mentioned you went to, to Georgetown, a master's, uh, and a BA, different certifications as well in, in different things like Bright Edge and and Google. So I'm kind of interested to hear you talk a little bit about the self-importance of building up your self-knowledge and, and constantly educating yourself. Yeah, you know, I think obviously it's, it's critical. And I, I would say that most of the education, um, you know, that, that most people probably receive throughout their career isn't necessarily in the form of like a certificate or some sort of specific program, but it's knowing those moments and knowing those things that will continue to resonate down the road. Um, so in that sense, it's a little bit, you know, it's having a little bit of the ability to anticipate where an industry is headed and be one of the, you know, uh, sort of first people to, to understand that and to, and to, and to get that knowledge. Um, maybe I say that because that's how it worked out for me specifically with SEO, right? Like I said, there, there weren't really certification programs or, or um, continuing education for SEO. We just, we just all learned it and you turn yourself into an expert. Um, now it obviously helps a long way to augment that with, you know, additional outside education that uh, I think, um, you know, threads together with that larger narrative. And so as long as uh, there is, you know, as long as one thing leads to the next in a way that makes sense to you, um, you know, I would say shape it however, however you're comfortable with and, and you know, build your own major, <laughs> I guess, in, in uh, you know, using undergrad college terms. I mean, you have, you have so much to balance, you know, you, you're doing, you're, you're fighting the fight with uh, the protection election. You're also, as we mentioned, um, doing your own thing through the Dunshire group. H how do you kind of balance it all? What, what sort of time hacks do you have that you can share with the group? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it's a good question and it's hard for me to answer because honestly, uh, time management is not a strength of mine. <laughs> you know, I, I've always, uh, I've always struggled to sort of stick to, um, you know, uh, plans for the day where, you know, from nine to nine 30, I'm going to do this from nine 30 to 11 to this. Um, I, I think that's just the way my brain is wired that I kind of take what's thrown at me and what feels like the, the biggest priority at any given time. Um, it, it is an interesting, uh, callback to my days, uh, in TV production, which as I said, was sort of where where it all started um because live television doesn't allow you to procrastinate and I, and I think i think i did well in that environment when you've got 30 seconds to pull together a video edit and, and then get it on the air um you know your adre adrenaline rushes and 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 you do good work at least at least i did right so i think operating under pressure um is uh is something i've always been able to do well and when there's not that time sensitive pressure um, 
sometimes I've got to create it, right? So, so I think giving yourself deadlines to hit um, is is certainly you know a valuable thing. Um, prioritizing between like the nonprofit and the consulting that I'm doing, uh, and in this you know weird 2020 world we live in where everybody's working from home and, and I've got two kids at home. It's like, you know, I, I don't think it's any different from anyone else. We, we find the windows of time during the day that we can accomplish things and, and we make the most of it. So in a sense, I think that's how I've manufactured these deadlines for myself um, to, to get that adrenaline rushing is that I might, I might know that uh, at, at two o'clock, I got to go pick my kid up. So there's the deadline, right? There, there's, there's when the, the show goes live, everything's got to be done by two. Um, and so thinking about it that way, uh, you know, does help make sure that I work through my to-do list every day. And if, if someone's considering a career in digital marketing or, or communications similar to yours, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think one thing in particular springs to mind, um, and this is probably a whole podcast episode on its own, um, but consider the ethics of what you're doing. Um, and I, I don't mean that like that people should be scared off of digital marketing or communications. In fact, it's more important than ever that we have ethical people in these fields. Um, and that's because of the way we've seen, you know, social media be manipulated. We, we see disinformation everywhere. And so, you know, if, if some of the tech platforms aren't going to, you know, take action to regulate themselves, um, we really need people in this industry who understand its power and uh, you know use it use it for good you know to to kind of use a rely on a silly cliche um but i think there are you know a, a lot of folks out there who a decade ago um you know saw the power to manipulate in in digital media and we need to we need to 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 grab that back um so, you know, I would, I would say, please uh, join the fight, whether it's public interest or on the agency side or in-house somewhere, but, but think about the impact you're having on the people consuming your work. Yeah, I think one thing that springs to mind when you say that is I was, I think I was on one social platform, I can't remember which one it was, and there was a, there's a CEO on there, I, I can't remember the company name, but his, his MO you can see is, um, is promoting how less money he earns in comparison to his um, employees, right? And that, and he promotes that pretty regularly. He's on a lot of uh, news channels talking about kind of equity in, in salary. Mm-hmm. And then a company that um, I'm fond of released their earnings and they made a profit. And he came out and just hammered the CEO and saying, you know, how the CEO didn't take a salary cut. And, but all these things were false. And you know that you know that they're like falls mm-hmm. because they were in in the press at the time of the happening. That CEO did take a salary cut, and yeah. that CEO did make decisions which were hard. And and uh, he he was just basically saying it's it's all for the shareholders. And I I wanted to bite back, but I was like no, like <laughs> he he probably doesn't care about uh, Chris and Maryland to be honest. But it, that you know when you say about working for people and and understanding ethics, that that's that they're right in there, right? Those he he's trying to share a message and he's using other means which are false to kind of strengthen his story, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's just, 
we have to be educated consumers of media and, and this goes for whether you're, you're in the audience or whether you're the person creating it. Um, it's very hard to, to find a balance between, you know, something that is 100% true. I mean, there's always going to be spin. There's always going to be marketing, right? And there's nothing wrong with that um, as long as we think about the impact that it has on, on the audience and, and the world at large, I think. So if I said to you, you can have the next perfect 12 months, what would happen? Um, the United States of America would, would pass electoral reform laws in all 50 states, and we would not live through the chaos and confusion that we've all lived through for the past four to six months and everything being different from state to state and, you know, uh, um, disinformation being out there everywhere. Uh, I think as a means of, you know, getting to that, uh, um, you know, admittedly, very unrealistic goal. You know, I, I, I'm excited to continue to kind of build partnerships with in the advocacy space, uh, interested in protecting our election, um, but also, uh, you know, trying to kind of rebuild our union in, in, in this country. Um, and so, you know, hoping to, to tap into some of those funding networks, like, like I mentioned, that being kind of a challenge. Um, you know, but 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 growing this entity and and you know to include um, additional staff and and uh, having a, a a nice kind of self-sustaining advertising budget um, and starting to you know become kind of more of a more of a player. I, I think we had some good success here in this election cycle, and uh, I learned a lot about the subject um, about election law and election processes. Um, I came to respect a lot of the people who are out there working in more of an academic capacity. Um, but I think I also came to realize that even though I, you know, I jumped into this space, not necessarily knowing what I was talking about, um, I, I, I learned on the fly and I still think that there is not enough advocacy work being done around elections, um, you know, independent of campaigns and candidates. Uh, you know, the, the, the best feedback I got um, as I was building Protect Our Election and talking to, to someone who was interested in, in funding us um, and, and has been very supportive and continues to be, uh, you know, when I talked about playing this right down the middle, and this was very nonpartisan, it's, it's C3 work, it is being pro-democracy. Um, and she said, you're, you're exactly right. And, and what you're pitching is something that's very needed. Democracy does not have a marketing department. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of held on to that comment and I thought, yeah, wow, you know, they're, they're, we've got, you know, kind of a, a set of American ideals that, you know, I think at least at one point we, we shared and we valued um, what democracy is, but, but it feels to me like we're losing that and it feels to me like we need to make it cool again. Okay, so I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. When working with you, what are two behavioral qualities that others just have to show on a daily basis? So I think authenticity. Um, you know, I, I really uh, bond well and, and work well with people who are themselves instead of people who are trying to be something else. Um, so that's certainly one of them. Um, and then uh, I think creativity and in in a way that you know I certainly love working with creative folks and, and I love you know uh, 
artists and, and um, you know, video editors and, and animators and, and the whole world. Um, but I also think create kind of creativity in the way that you express yourself and not being afraid to verbalize an idea that, you know, maybe you're not using the right words to describe, but that it kind of is an idea that came from you and, and you're going to own it um, rather than getting caught up in, you know, whatever the buzzword of the day is in any given industry. So those are, I think, you know, in, in thinking about the people that I've had the strongest work relationships with over my career, I think people were, were authentic and, and creative. And then what is one unacceptable behavior at work that you just simply do not tolerate? Uh, um, <laughs> probably what, you know, uh, uh, many people would answer this question this way, which is, um, uh, you know, kind of that me first attitude and, and kind of trying to, you know, work your way to the top without being a team player, um, throwing other people under the bus, trying to take credit for everything. Uh, I'm lucky enough to not have had many of those people in my work environments. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when you do, it can be, it can be kind of toxic. And so, uh, you know, the, it, it's sort of the flip side of authentic, right? It, it, it's someone who has a persona that is based on, you know, like reading too many management consulting books that are telling them how to do certain things. Just be yourself, you know? Well, thank you so much for your time, Steve. I've really enjoyed the the hour or so that we've been together. And what we'll do is we'll link the the website for Protect Our Election and also the Dunshire Group in the show notes, as well as your LinkedIn profile. So if people want to learn more, they can they can head over there and and read out more about um, the work that you're doing. But again, thank you so much for spending an hour with us, and I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. It was it was great talking to you. Thanks again for downloading and listening to the one-to-one -one career conversation podcast. I do hope that you enjoyed the conversation today with Steve Wanzik. You can truly tell that Steve is merging two of his key passions, communications and marketing with also politics. And he's doing great work in a truly complicated field, but it's frankly a field that is necessary this year. I love the way that Steve spoke about setting up his own nonprofit and that it really wasn't as hard as he thought it was, and the encouragement he had for others to do the same, should that be where their passion lie. As you, a reminder, you can discover more about this podcast over on LinkedIn by searching one-to-one -one career conversation, and you can also follow the show over on Instagram and Twitter at the one-to-one -one pod. Please do let us know what you thought of today's conversation, and you can do that through any of the social platforms or on iTunes reviews. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.